Do you know what hazards at your offices could cause a crisis for your agency or company? I'm Edward Siegel, a leadership strategy senior contributor for Forbes.com and author of the best-selling and award-winning book, Crisis Ahead, 101 Ways to Prepare for and Bounce Back from Disasters, Scandals, and Other Emergencies. My guest today is John Doney, who's the Vice President of Workplace Strategy at the National Safety Council. He'll share his advice and insights about the workplace-related dangers that can cause a crisis and what could be done about them. Well, thanks for joining me today, John. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Glad to be here and uh, great to talk about this topic today. Uh, For those who may not be familiar with the National Safety Council, tell us a little bit about its mission and activities. Sure. Uh, So we're a 110-year-old nonprofit. Our founding was in back in 1913. uh, And our mission is to save lives from the workplace to any place. Uh, We do that across a number of different domains, uh, primarily workplace safety, but also roadway safety. Uh, And cutting across those two disciplines is the issue of impairment, uh, which spans everything from substance misuse to fatigue to stress and mental distress. Uh, And that that obviously cuts into both uh, workplace and uh, transportation safety. Uh, So our mission is really to help people live their fullest lives wherever wherever we can, however we can, in terms of uh, eliminating preventable death and injury. From your perspective, uh, how can dangerous and hazardous conditions in the federal or corporate workplace uh, cause injuries or death that could create a crisis for those organizations? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's one that honestly has spanned our entire existence as an organization. Uh, and I think we saw crisis as early as, you know, 1913 or before, and that was really the impetus for our founding. So if, if you think about those historical events long ago, things like the Triangle uh, Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which is a really famous crisis and disaster that, that led to really the expansion of the safety movement in the U.S., um, through to the founding of OSHA in the 70s, uh, through to, you know, our more modern approaches, um, we've seen over and over again that safety and health issues can and in fact do lead to crisis situations. So in the more modern day, you can think about big incidents that everyone's probably fairly familiar with, things like uh, the Bhopal disaster, uh, Texas City, Macondo, um, the, the Challenger and Columbia disasters, even COVID, I think really qualify as, as, as you know, issues that really arose out of health and safety uh, that led to um, massive crisis uh, on the part of some of these organizations. Um, and even though we've spent many, many years learning and improving on that front, um, you know, the size and scale of these these uh, disasters, both from a human toll and a financial toll, um, you know, are, are still massive. And although we've learned all of these lessons over time, um, we still you know, continue to be challenged by certain issues, including, uh, you know, the lack of psychological safety and, and ability to speak up that, um, you know, reckoning with that human element uh, that still, you know, lead to disasters and, and crises today. So. I think that, um, you know, often it's only a, a, an issue of what size or scale the crisis is and not whether uh, one will happen. Obviously, something like COVID has a mass uh, global scale, uh, whereas, you know, for an individual fatality or, or safety issue, uh, you may see a, a company-wide or a business-wide crisis, but perhaps not a national uh, one. Um, so I think the, the short answer is there's a wide variety of ways in which safety and health issues can cause crises, um, but inevitably left on un, unchecked uh, and and undealt with, uh, they always uh, do to some extent or another. I certainly remember the uh, triangle of fire. Uh, not that I was there, but I remember it from the history books. For those who may not remember that uh, crisis, can you tell us a little bit about it? And why did it uh, lead to the founding of your organization? 
Yeah, absolutely. So it was, it was a horrific event in which hundreds of people died, mostly uh, shirt factory workers, garment factory workers. Uh, and many of those were, were women uh, as, uh, at the time. Um, and really, the, the reason that that happened was a very simple, preventable reason. Um, back in those days, factory owners often would uh, close and lock the fire doors uh, if they indeed existed in a factory at the time um, to prevent workers from stepping away from their stations and you know getting a breath of fresh air or doing whatever else would have been perceived as unproductive. Um, and when the fire started in, in the in the factory, because the doors were locked to reduce you know the potential of workers being unproductive, uh, it led to virtually everyone in in the factory being killed as a result of the incident. Um, so you know obviously that was a massive wake up call for the United States, but there were certainly other incidents around that same time, both domestically and globally, that uh, should have taught us the same lesson. Um, and in light of that, you know, it's, it's, it's disheartening to know that incidents like that still happen today, sometimes for very similar reasons um, in many cases. But in any event, the National Safety Council really was, a, was a, formed out of a group of industry leaders at the time, um, folks who worked for large and small companies who said, you know what, this doesn't need to be the price of doing business. We can do things better. We can learn from one another. We can, we can instill, you know, this, this spirit in other um, owners and other business leaders, and we can codify the practices that we need to adhere to to make sure this doesn't happen again. So really, that was what led to our founding. And then since then, the, the scope and the mission had, have changed over the years. But that, that spirit of, of really uh, learning from one another, preventing these things from happening is the core uh, remit of the organization. So fast forward to today, what are the specific examples of dangers and hazards that workers are, are facing today? And how are their employers responding to those uh, potential hazards? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that the, the number, the number and type of hazards uh, workers are facing is uh, is potentially incalculable. It really depends on the operating environment. But um, if you think about the average worker uh, today, you know, most people work for a smaller, medium-sized organization for the most part, and about eighty percent of NSC members are small and medium-sized organizations. Um, and, and that tends to mean that they don't necessarily have um, all of the know-how, all of the resources, all of the personnel and bandwidth. Um, that would help, um, you know, address some of these safety and health issues in the field. So for, for a worker going into, you know, let's say an average manufacturing environment, um, you know, there are the very obvious, obvious physical hazards that they may face, you know, maybe things like uh, heat exposure, chemical exposure, moving parts and presses in a big uh, factory setting. Um, it could be smaller scale, things like ships and falls or things that are repetitive in nature, like ergonomic injuries or MSDs, as they're called, musculoskeletal disorders. Um, but I think also there's an increasing attention on the psychosocial, um, non-physical risk factors that workers face and how those can impact their physical safety. So if you think about a worker who maybe comes from an underserved population, maybe English isn't their first language, um, they're coming into that same work setting without being able to interpret and read the, you know, potentially the, the, the signs and the, the protocols and the processes that have been put in place. Uh, to address safety, or they may not feel comfortable given their their standing in the organization with raising their hand and saying, "Hey, I see something that's concerning to me," or you know, "Hey, I only got two hours of sleep last night. I really, you know, maybe should think about calling off." Um, so it's that whole composite of both the very obvious physical risks that that you see when you go in and observe uh, a facility or a work setting, uh, as well as the you know untold number of things that are external factors in to an individual worker at any one time. So it's really only just been in the past maybe 
10, 5, 10 years that, that organizations are waking up to those below the surface issues, even if they've done a really good job at addressing the physical hazards. Um, so, you know, again, it, it depends on the work setting, but it, in almost every case, you've got some form or, or, or fashion of, you know, potential risk for physical injury and, and psychological injury going into a workplace. Um, and for really extreme settings, you know, agriculture in extreme heat in California or, you know, uh, repetitive motion on a manufacturing floor of assembling the same part over and over again. Even those things that may not cause you physical discomfort for one day uh, when extended over a year or extended over five years or 10 years can certainly have a massive toll uh, on an individual. Are you seeing any specific trends uh, in the workplace uh, concerning uh, deaths and injuries? Absolutely. And, and NSC has a long history of monitoring the trends and the data. We're very much data-driven. We look at the main sources of injury, the things that are underlying those factors, and really create programs and resources to address them. And we get data on about a two-year lagging um, uh, cadence. Uh, the, the federal surveillance uh, infrastructure to understand workplace deaths and injuries uh, tends to collect that about a, about a two-year um, uh, lapse from, from the actual date. So we've just gotten hold of 2021 data in the past few months. Uh, and the trend is actually pretty alarming. Uh, the number of workplace deaths spiked up to uh, just just close to 4,500. I believe it's 4,472 uh, workplace fatalities uh, in 2021. And that was a fairly significant uptick from 2020. Um, if you look at the past 20 years in general, you know, that number of fatalities has remained relatively flat. We, we tend to be between about 5,000, 4,000 to 5,000 workplace fatalities every given year. Um, well, the trend on our injuries tends to go down a little bit. We tend to get better at, at taking care of the less severe things, uh, but not any better at taking care of the really severe things, the things that can and, and often do throw us into crisis. Um, the other piece that, that I think bears mentioning is that we have very limited data uh, on the trends in um, illnesses in the workplace and illnesses that lead to death in the workplace. So you could think about things like um, silicosis or um, you know, uh, mesothelioma uh, that tend to come from workplace exposure. Um, being able to count and understand the scope of those sorts of deaths is, is really difficult and we have to rely on multiple sources of information. Um, some estimates put it in the multiple hundred thousands per year. Um, so just a massive scope and scale of that, which is which is undercounted and underrepresented. Um, the other trends we're seeing beyond just the macro numbers, of course, is you know going to be reflected in the type of work and where the economic trends are going. So you know from an illness perspective, we obviously saw a fairly large uptick, we believe, there because of COVID. Uh, you know, seeing the 2021 data that obviously be really relevant in those numbers. Um, but we also tend to see um, you know fairly consistent ways in which people generally tend to get injured. Um, slips, trips, and falls, falling from heights, uh, getting sprains and strains um, from a muscle perspective, getting hit by something in a facility, whether that might be a piece of equipment or a fork truck or just a swinging piece of machinery or what have you, those tend to be pretty consistent. Um, the, the causes of death tend to vary widely dependent on you know, what, what happened in a given year, uh, but again, tend to, tend to follow those same trends. So you know, the, I, I guess what I would say is an overall uptake uh, on this front is that you know, the trend is that the numbers aren't going anywhere very fast. And that's what's been you know, in incredibly alarming to us is despite increased knowledge, new pro approaches, new focus on serious injuries and fatalities, we haven't seen the trend uh, dip in the direction we'd like it to. Aren't you concerned, though, about the two-year lag in getting the most current data and also these gaps you just mentioned in terms of the categories of information you have access to? 
are we getting a full picture of uh, dangers in the workplace? Increasingly, we're, we're trying to through sources that aren't traditional. So I would say um, the two-year gap has always been concerning, but it's it's a federal data collection effort, and we understand it takes time to synthesize all that information. Uh, companies are asked to submit their their official records uh, if they're, they're required to for reporting um, in February, typically. Uh, that all goes into a database, all gets analyzed and cross-tabbed, and, and so we, we know that that takes time. So there's only so much we can do on that front. However, a big part of our effort is to go get actual data and in-field practice from organizations, work with them to build benchmarking and, and best practice type coalitions to share information and knowledge and better understand their data. So a great example of this is uh, we relaunched a program called the MSC Solutions Lab about a year and a half ago, focused on ergonomic injuries and muscle skeletal disorders. Uh, we've created a pledge community. When you pledge into that community, you, should, you can share your data with us. Uh, that's real-time data. We can use that to benchmark and provide guidance for you and for everyone else in that cohort. So those sorts of voluntary efforts to collect the data, whether they're being done by NSC or other nonprofits or other agencies, have been a really helpful way to bridge that data gap. Um, but as with almost anything, the closer you look at it, the more you find uh, potential for improvement. And one of the big areas we've been focused on in the past um, couple of years is the dearth of data from a, from a demographic perspective as well. Uh, if we cross look at several data sets, we understand that it looks as though underserved populations and people of color tend to be injured at higher rates, uh, in part because they tend to um, be in, a, in an, an environment where they may take jobs that are riskier um, in, in terms of what they have access to. Um, but that data isn't all collected in one clear place. Uh, and it leads to a lot of questions about whether uh, those demographic issues have a real bearing on safety and health and to what extent. Uh, so, you know, even at a, you know, at a macro level, we know there are data gaps. When you go down to a micro level and try to solve specific problems, we find even, even further data gaps. So it's obviously a big concern of ours. And one of the things we've been talking with our, our partners at and agencies federally and state level uh, to, to enhance and to, to do more with. So we've had a sort of an always on campaign around data uh, validity, data and surveillance quality uh, for many, many years now. Are there dangers and risks in the workplace that you're seeing recently that weren't even on the horizon uh, 10, 15, or 20 years ago? Certainly. So I, I think that, you know, perhaps it's not that the dangers were there. Perhaps it's that our understanding of those dangers have changed and are now uh, more attentive and attuned. Um, one of the really obvious ones, you know, just talking about COVID as we were, you know, that, that's been, you know, something that came and, and now in many cases has left the workplace in terms of the way we approach that risk factor. Hopefully some of the learnings we, we had from COVID from a workplace safety perspective do tend to stick around. I think a lot of organizations have gotten smarter about their sick leave policies and the way they approach um, physical work environments and, and things of that nature. Um, but you know, I, I mentioned the psychosocial risk factors earlier in, in the, the conversation here, and, and that's a whole category of risk factors that you know, when I first came into the profession 15, 17, 18 years ago, um, we weren't talking about much, if at all. And if we were, we were talking about them more from a physical well-being perspective. Uh, and in the early aughts and you know, 10,000, 20,000s, that was a uh, you know, a, a nascent conversation, an emerging conversation. We were talking about ways to address it, but we weren't being very mature or systemic in terms of targeting the risk. Um, that's that's taken some advances, and we've now we're now seeing much more systemic and data-driven approaches to to addressing 
um, well-being or health risk in the workplace, although not everywhere and not with every organization. Um, so I think that whole category of the human side of things, whether it's through physical or mental well-being, or whether it's an understanding of human error and how we think and perceive, um, you know, that was not a conversation we were having much 20 years ago either. Now we know that, you know, if we're, if we're not creating the capacity to fail safely in our organizations, we're really setting workers up for, you know, for potential uh, hazardous situations. And the old school mentality was when we saw that sort of thing, well, we'd retrain them. And if we couldn't retrain them, we'd blame and shame them and we'd fire them. Um, so that that's changed drastically over the years to where, Mature organizations now are, have a much better understanding of how human factors fit in to our to our risk profile and how we think about that in the workplace. Well, looking forward, uh, can you strategize or I guess uh, play futurist, if you will, for mm -hmm. dangers in the workplace five or ten years from now that uh, we're not even thinking about today? Sure. Yeah. No. That that's one I I love thinking about as much as it's a, a difficult conversation because we're talking about negative potential potential things happening. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we, we, when we think about five to 10 years out, we, we usually tend to think a lot about technology. Um, NSC does have a, a whole safety technology program uh, put together called Work to Zero, which is focused on safety tech, uh, particularly for serious injury and fatality prevention. Um, but the reason I bring up technology is, you know, it, it's certainly going to be something that is going to create opportunity to address a lot of the risks and hazards we see. Um, but what it may also do is create new risk factors and hazards. So a couple of good examples of that, or at least one, one really good example that we're starting to see even now is as we've uh, enhanced technology for training, for instance, you know, new, new channels of training, micro learning, um, ability to, to get people just in time information when they need it. Um, it's proved really, really useful in terms of spot refresh for maybe a complex task or something that you don't do often that might be risky. Um, but it also carries the potential of that, that sort of YouTube level of knowledge, right? When, when you go and Google something that you want to go do because you haven't done it around your house before and make a repair, you might watch a three minute video and feel like you're, you're totally ready to go take on the task. Uh, unless you've been pretty extensively trained in something prior to that, you know, if you're an electrician, okay, go go into your circuit box and go deal with that. That's fine. Um, but otherwise, a three-minute training is probably not going to cut it. So thinking about how the way we serve up information to people and when and how uh, for them to be competent to do a task, um, because we're leveraging these new technologies, creates a whole new set of risk factors. Uh, another big one, and this is on everyone's mind right now, and I kind of hardly turn around a corner without hearing someone talking about uh, the way we're utilizing AI and natural language processing and machine learning tools. Um, from a safety and health perspective, that carries a couple of big risks. You know, one is validity of the information um, when it comes to using those sorts of tools to help uh, derive an insight or communicate something uh, to, to your workforce. Um, we all know that there's, a, there's inherent biases and gaps in those models because they're created whole cloth from everything we've put out there in the world and we're biased and flawed people, right? So, so there's, there's a lot of potential for harm there. Um, the other is on sort of the far end of that spectrum, when you get to potential actual use of AI tools to inform decision-making. So if you think about um, a future state scenario where you have computer vision in your, in your factory setting that can identify you know, someone not wearing personal protective equipment or can identify a spill that might have happened. Um, you now have the potential to link that into an NLP or an AI tool that could identify that, tag it, create notifications, start to take action, essentially, uh, without even human intervention in the middle, right? So the question becomes, you know, at what point do you trust the tool you have in place to make the informed decision? And when do you need 
to intervene with a human perspective? You know, how do we engage in that that human AI interaction um, from an ethics of decision making perspective? Now, that's pretty high hanging fruit. That's not anything someone needs to worry about tomorrow. Uh, but on a five to 10 year horizon, if we think these tools are going to be in use widely across industry, then we definitely need to think about the second line implications of, of those tools from a safety and ethics perspective. Well, focusing back on today, uh, which companies and federal agencies do you think are doing an excellent job of uh, preventing or mitigating workplace related injuries and deaths? Yeah, I, I think a lot of organizations are, a lot of organizations are trying to uh, and have the right intention. Um, so we have a, a couple of groups at NSC that are good examples of this. Our Campbell Institute, which was formed in 2012, is really a home for mature organizations who want to help each other get better, right? The, the goal is really to enable them to, to improve and enable the whole world to improve on the back of what we learn from these more mature organizations. Uh, we have a number of networks that are either cross industry or perhaps industry focused specifically on going after the, the new and greatest innovation solutions uh, you know, tactics they can use to keep people safe. Um, it'd be easier to, to, to name it that way, I think, than call out specific organizations because almost everybody has something that might be valuable to you. And what we've learned is when organizations are at their sort of lowest point, if they have had a major incident or injury recently, they tend to also be at their, their most uh, ready point for learning. They're vulnerable, they're hungry, they want to fix, they want to get better. Um, so even organizations who are at a low ebb on that front tend to have something productive and valuable to give into the conversation, even if it's a by, by virtue of not doing the thing that they did or, or understanding what they could have done differently. So I think there are a lot of organizations out there doing it. It's more about finding where those companies are convening. Um, so that might be through you know, things that our friends at NIOSH or OSHA put together uh, in the federal side, or it could be you know, things that NSC do or our sister type organizations like ASSP, the American Society of Safety Professionals, um, or AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Uh, they, they do many of the similar types of things that NSC does as well in terms of bringing that information together and, and putting it into the public domain. So uh, I think it's, it's about engaging with your industry peers first and then coming to organizations like NSC to see what's crossing industry and, and what we can help you with. How proactive, though, is OSHA and uh, uh, the parent agency, the Department of Labor, how proactive are they in helping to prevent or mitigate or providing advice to companies and organizations and federal agencies to be proactive yeah. in uh, uh, addressing this issue? Yeah, I think, I think OSHA is as proactive as it can be in any given year, given the budget constraints that it may have. So, you know, I, I think OSHA has a primary uh, objective for enforcement activity, right, for understanding what's, you know, assessment and enforcement of what's taking place in the field. So that often leads people to, to view them as a, as a negative agency that's not necessarily proactive or preventative. Um, but on the other side of the coin, you've got programs like OSHA's VPP program, or Voluntary Protection Program, uh, which is aimed at understanding what organizations are doing well, uh, helping to share those learnings out and they, they run a whole conference every year, VPP Association, around you know, what organizations in that cluster are doing to, to really improve things. Um, so through, through venues like that or through communications campaigns like Safe and Sound that, that OSHA does on a year-round basis, those are the more proactive elements that, that they're able to, to bring to bear. Um, in terms of in terms of taking that action, and then they convene um, groups of great stakeholders and thinkers uh, through through things like um, NACOSH, which is the uh, National Advisory Council on Occupational Safety and Health, um, which gets cross industry, gets labor perspective, gets governmental perspective, gets NGO perspectives and business perspectives on what we should be doing collectively uh, to to move the needle forward. 
perspective. So uh, again, I think I think they're doing a really good job from a proactive perspective within, again, the limitations of the budget they have to operate under, because a lot of that needs to go toward their core purpose of enforcement and assessment and inspection. What's your advice for agency managers and corporate executives uh, who have not yet taken steps to help prevent workplace-related injuries or deaths? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's start to, by coming to us for, for one, um, by coming to anybody who has free resources available. And I think you'll find that whether you turn to OSHA or whether you turn to NIOSH, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, or whether you turn to NSC, you're going to find a huge swath of free resources that are going to help you. Um, what may be uh, more challenging is understanding exactly where to start. And so I would say, you know, on that front, it, it's it's never a bad idea to talk to your employees, talk to your workforce and understand what's what they see and perceive as risky. Engaging your people is going to be a key step, regardless of whether uh, you're a 5000 person organization or a five person organization. Um, engage your people, ask them what they're thinking and feeling, and then start engaging in some sort of formalized assessment of the risks and hazards you have. If you're just doing things ad hoc and, and whack-a-mole style, you're never going to get to true improvement. You might fix one thing and have another thing pop up on the other side. So I think you know engaging and getting systemic and, for, uh, and, and formalized around risk assessment and hazard identification are two of the, e- the easiest things you can do uh, when you want to start the journey. And then go seek help because there's lots of people who are willing to help you, lots of people who are who have been doing this for 50 years uh, who want nothing more than, than to be able to use that knowledge and that influence to help a small organization or any organization keep its people in, in good shape and send them home as, as good or better as they were when they showed up in the morning. How do you think organizations should account for this type of crisis in their crisis management plans? Yeah, I, I think it should be a key part of it. If you think about uh, enterprise risk management or risk management activities on the whole in an organization, which is typically where your crisis plan will be housed or, or seated, um, you know, making sure that safety and health has a seat at that table and is informing that plan, that continuity plan. Um, because if you're not starting from you know, having your paper in front of you on what you're gonna do when these things happen, and then you don't go rigorously tabletop exercise it and understand what's going to happen when it actually plays out, then you'll end up in a situation we're probably all still far too familiar with, which is what happened in you know, March of, of 20, you know, 2021, uh, 2020 rather, when we were all really coming to grips with, with COVID-19 and realized maybe we have an infectious disease crisis management plan, um, but it might've been a couple pieces of paper with no real understanding of where we go from here. And so in real time, everyone then understood, okay, this is, this is a really significant health issue, safety and health issue. Now we need to deal with it. So I think it's not just getting the crisis plan done and not just about having safety and health involved. It's about really going out and understanding what it looks like when it happens in a controlled setting, because you know there's the, the many famous quotes about that, including you know the, that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, which is one you've probably heard before. But but that's the you know that's the uh, reality that we've all seen over and over again. So to harden those plans and to make them robust and actual, uh, actually tactical, and, and have them play out is is a key uh, key step for organizations. Are there any role models or templates that you recommend that others follow to help last, lessen the chance that they'll face this type of crisis? Oh, sure. I mean, there, there are great, lots of great templates and models out there. Um, OSHA has one, NSC has one, uh, the various flavors of the International Standards Organization, ISO. Uh, they have great standards that help from a template perspective, like ISO 45001, which is their integrated uh, safety and health environmental standard. Um, 
you can also go to a lot of organizations like NASA, for instance, which by virtue of being a federal agency sort of has to publish its, its management system and its safety and health approach online. So they have a lot of that available. You can go grab sample policy statements, understand what they do to manage risk. Um, you know, so going to those sorts of uh, storehouses and clearinghouses for this information um, is, a, is a great um, starting point. Um, and then, you know, NSC has a variety of examples of if you've agreed, if you've decided to go this direction, here's how you could implement that from an internal policy perspective. Here's some examples of what you might put in your language. Here's some protocols you could use. Here's some some actual tactical plans you could go use in the field. Um, so, th so that's, um, you know, widely available. And I'd say my advice is to not get too tripped up on which flavor of template you're using, uh, because they're all cut generally from a similar type of cloth. Um, and, and worrying about whether you're doing the, the best version of something is usually going to just delay you from doing the pretty good version of something. And, and really letting, letting um, perfect be the enemy of good is not something you want in a safety and health scenario. You want to continue to improve and iterate year over year, but just getting started and doing something is, is far preferable uh, to doing nothing. When testing their crisis management plans to help make sure that they'll work when needed, uh, what workplace-related crisis scenarios should they practice uh, responding to? Oh, gosh. Well, the, there, there's a number of them, and they're dependent on your business and what you engage in every day. Um, but I'd say for, for a typical organization, certainly we all usually do the weather-related ones, like tornado drills and earthquake drills. Those are obviously clear crisis management pieces you want in place. Um, but for many organizations of, of any scale doing risky work, you're going to be looking at things like confined space entry and retrieval, uh, rescue sorts of sorts of crisis plans. You're going to be looking at fire, obviously, or chemical spills or chemical release. Um, you're going to be looking at infectious disease, uh, you know, particularly in light of COVID and what we've seen. Um, all of those are really, uh, really good scenarios to go look at. Um, but then also, you know, I'd say just having an understanding of what happens if it, if it doesn't seem to be a crisis, if it seems to be just one thing, if it seems to just be that one person fell from height and, and was killed in a, in a workplace fatality, that might not seem like it should go in your crisis plan. But I would say that if that happened, it's probably an indication that there are latent systemic issues, cultural issues, et cetera, that are probably driving you toward the brink of a crisis. So understanding how to deal with even a, a single incident and look back at what's going on in your organization. To me, that's 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 also a bread and butter piece of, of a crisis management plan. And thinking about you know any serious injury or fatality in your organization really should be the trigger point for some self-examination, reflection, and kind of going back to that crisis plan plan book to, uh, to to treat this with the seriousness it deserves. I'm afraid we're almost out of time today, but what's the most important thing you'd like people to remember from our conversation? Sure. I, I think it's that when, when you think about crisis, I think we often um, think about those things that are massive in scale, that are global, um, that have so many dimensions to them, perhaps economic, perhaps uh, perhaps cultural, perhaps business related. Um, but I don't know that we always think about them in terms of the human impact and, and how the, the individual person or worker fits into them. And so I, I think I would urge every organization listening to this to think about um, a crisis as being as small as just one serious incident in your organization, because when, when you peel back the layers from that, you're often going to find uh, really potential, uh, potential issues across the board uh, in your operations. And if you're not taking a fine tooth comb to those and looking at those with seriousness, you're really setting yourself up for 
the next crisis. So I think that would be my, my main takeaway here is that safety and health has a seat at this table. Uh, you should be listening to the folks in your organization that you've given authority for that when it comes to crisis management. And those conversations should be happening in the same room at the same time. Well, that's great advice, insights, and recommendations. And I want to thank you again for being on Crisis Ahead, John. Thank you. It's been great to have this conversation with you and looking forward to chatting in the further, uh, further in the future. That's it for this edition of Crisis Ahead. My guest today was John Doney, the Vice President of Workplace Strategy at the National Safety Council. Be sure to come back next week for more advice and insights on preparing for, managing, and recovering from a crisis. Or subscribe to Crisis Ahead wherever you get podcasts. Remember, it's not a matter of if a crisis will hit your organization or company, it's when. And the sooner you are prepared for it, the better. Produced by HeartCast Media.